Yes, loving Father, we thank you for that glorious, wonderful future that we have to look forward to if we are in Christ Jesus. We thank you now for all your blessings in this life. We ask that uh, these gifts that have been given now and, and given through the week might be used uh, for the extension of your kingdom, that many more might come to know this beautiful saviour of ours and might come to share in that wonderful hope for the future. As we come to your word now, would you direct our hearts towards him? Would it be Jesus Christ upon whom we fix our eyes by your spirit now and in the days ahead that we might live lives that bring glory to him and make his name great? For his sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please do uh, take a seat and uh, please keep your Bibles open at Ruth chapter 4. I wonder what your longest standing Christmas tradition is. Maybe something that's been passed down through the years from generation to generation. This is Santa. Um, or more accurately, a, a fabric representation of him. Uh, and Santa was made uh, probably about 40 years ago uh, by uh, one of my wife's aunts. Uh, and every year since then, he's featured in my wife's family Christmas. All through her childhood, every day in December, uh, there'd be a treat or a puzzle in one of Santa's pockets. Now, 40 years on, well, now it is our children who excitedly run downstairs each morning to try and solve the clue that will lead to the chocolate. And that's the thing about traditions, isn't it? We realize that the best ones will carry on beyond ourselves into the generations that follow. They will impact the lives of those who weren't even born when it all started. Pop him down there. He's quite an elderly gentleman now. Have a rest. Well, friends, we will see something like that today as our time in the book of Ruth draws to a conclusion. It's not so much about traditions, but it is about the events recorded here echoing down through the generations to come, having an impact in, in the lives of those yet to be born. Because we've seen all the way through, haven't we, that yes, this is the story of, of one fairly ordinary, fairly unremarkable family in ancient Israel. But it is also more than that. It is also about the plans and, and purposes of the living God, worked out in the very ordinary lives of his people, but as we shall see, creating ripples that will propagate for generation after generation. Indeed, we'll see that the conclusion of this story continues to have effect still today, right up to our own generation here and now. This story bleeds right into our story. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. First, uh, there's a hurdle to overcome. You might remember from last week, uh, we left Ruth and Naomi waiting 
waiting for a redeemer. Boaz would gladly do the job, but there's another in the family, a closer relative. Let's wait and see what he does. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. This is the the town gate, the place traditionally where legal cases were heard. And of course, it just so happened that the man in question was walking by. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Well, it's a heart-stopping moment, isn't it? If you've been following our story all the way through, we have hoped that Boaz and Ruth might get together. But now, well, now it looks like our wonderful story might all end in disaster. Now it looks as though this other relative who we've only just met, well, well, he's going to sneak in and take Boaz's place. But Boaz and we, of course, know that it is not only the land that is included in this deal. Let's read on from verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the deed with his property. And friends, here really is the very center of the guardian-redeemer arrangement that God had put in place to protect and provide for his people. You see, it was not without cost for the one who would redeem the family. First, there was the initial cost of redemption, the land or or property that, that, uh, that had to be bought for a fair price. But more than that, you see, there was a future cost associated with taking the role of guardian redeemer. Whatever was bought, whether land or or property, would remain under the name of the original family. And that meant it would be passed on through that line, not inherited by the redeemer's family. And so in cases where there were children, well, redeeming a family member carried a considerable cost that would never be repaid. Perhaps this anonymous man only knew of Naomi's return. She was beyond childbearing age, and so redeeming Elimelech's portion of land may well have represented a wise investment. But as soon as Ruth and the possibility of offspring in Elimelech's line came into view, well, the cost to the Redeemer rises sharply. Verse 6. At this, the guardian Redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. It was a price he was unwilling to pay. His own name and inheritance of of whatever family he already had was more important to him 
than his responsibility towards his kinsmen. But not so Boaz. The truth is we, we simply don't know Boaz's family situation up to this point. It's very possible that he already had children whose inheritance this redemption would affect. There are suggestions that he too had been widowed. But what is clear, once Boaz has sealed the deal by accepting a sandal, which our narrator helpfully tells us was the equivalent of a firm handshake, what is clear is that Boaz entered into this transaction for the glory of God and for the sake of of Elimelech's name. Verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. And friends, today, we are witnesses. Throughout this story, we have witnessed Boaz to be a man of godly character. He knows the laws of his Lord and and he reflects Yahweh's character in the way he goes about following those laws. It matters more to Boaz that God's blessing to Elimelech is remembered for generations to come than that his own line is secured. Whatever the price of the land, whatever the cost in status and personal standing for Boaz, it is a price worth paying. His personal gain and and comfort are of far less importance than the fame and renown of Israel's God. Personal sacrifice is the way Boaz chooses. After all, personal sacrifice is God's way. And then as the the narrative draws to its conclusion, we see again that, that this is not really a story about Ruth and Boaz. It has never been about their own personal blessing or the gains they make as individuals. In the final verses of this book, the two of them fade very quickly into the background. Even when their son is born, they're only present because biology dictates that they must be. If we were writing the script, well, well, we'd probably have followed Boaz's declaration with joyful pictures of the beautiful marriage ceremony. Footage of, of Ruth and Boaz dancing on the beach on their honeymoon. And then scenes of the future as as they and little Obed enjoy family birthday parties and picnics in the park. But again, friends, that's the Hollywood version. And that's not what God's focus is in this story. And that's why Boaz's announcement that the redemption mission is finally completed is followed instead by this rather strange blessing of the village elders. Strange because if we take time to consider the events they refer to, they're far from the idyllic family scenes we might have wished upon Ruth and Boaz. Let's read what they say from verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, 
who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Rachel and Leah, Tamar and Judah. These are not, as we might expect, shining examples of blissful marriage. In fact, as we'll see, they represent some of the most sordid and dysfunctional episodes in Israel's history. So why choose them for a wedding blessing? What a bizarre choice. Well, maybe not. If your focus is not the individual happiness and prosperity of one couple but rather the overarching plans and and purposes of God that that each and every individual life is woven into. Then, well, well, then these examples from history serve to show us that God's way is at work through the very roughest of storms, to take the darkest and, and most saddening moments of life, and to use broken and messy people to bring about his glorious plan for humanity to show us his glory and his mercy and grace. These brief references remind us that we've seen God's way in ancient Israel's history. And it is the way of redemption. Rachel and Leah, well, well, they were Jacob's wives. He'd fallen in love with Rachel, but was deceived by his future father-in-law into marrying her sister, Leah, first. He brooded for seven years until he finally got what he wanted and married Rachel as well. But then the relationship between the two sisters was characterized by jealousy and rivalry. Jacob did nothing to help the situation and instead stoked the hatred between the two of them. Friends, this was a household full of bitterness and resentment. But out of that household came 12 sons. The 12 sons who would give birth to the 12 tribes of Israel. Out of one man's deception, another man's weakness, and and two women's conflict, God brought the nation through which he would bless all of humanity. Judah and Tamar, well, that's even more murky. You can read the story yourselves in Genesis 38, but the edited version is that Judah ended up sleeping with his daughter-in-law Tamar because he mistook her for a prostitute. And he'd already failed to provide for her after his son had died. It sounds, doesn't it, like, like something you'd find in a TV soap today, only much worse. Friends, this isn't a a sensational tale dreamt up to titillate the imagination. No, No, this is the history of the people of God. You wouldn't wish either of these domestic situations on your worst enemy, let alone pronounce them over a newly engaged couple as your hope for their future. And yet the point in both stories is what God was doing in amidst all the muck and stench of human sin. Because God's way is to use fallen, broken people and their fallen, messy lives to bring about his purposes. 
even in the basest, most corrupt human relationships, the Lord can work to show his mercy and to display his gracious gift of redemption to those who are furthest off. Perez, the the result of, of Judah and Tamar's union, he went on to have a family of his own. And five generations later, his descendant, Salmon, would have a son of his own and with a non-Israelite prostitute for what it's worth. But that son was Boaz, a man of standing, and Naomi's guardian redeemer. God's way had been shown through the history of ancient Israel up to this point. And now through Boaz, he continued to show his redeeming hand. And that is most clearly seen in the journey that that Naomi has been on from the beginning of this book. Let's look again from verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. As Ruth and Boaz fade into the background, so Naomi comes to the fore. And the remarkable transformation in her life is highlighted for us. God's way is shown in Naomi's life. We saw in chapter 1, the Lord used circumstances of incredible bitterness and loss to turn Naomi round and bring her back from Moab, from the land of idols. But even then, the Lord had not finished with her. She was back in Israel, but Naomi was empty. She had lost all that she held dear and was left without the means of survival for the present or any hope for the future. But into that emptiness. As she came to terms with the futility of her own attempts at self-salvation, into that the Lord, the God of Israel, came to her aid. Through his servant Boaz, he began to fill Naomi's life again. First with a, a dependable source of sustenance for her and Ruth in the present, and then with a wonderful hope for the future in baby Obed. Just notice the the language of those who celebrated his birth. They said, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Do you see? This baby marks the completion of Naomi's refilling. He is her son. Of course, not not physically, but he has reestablished the line of Elimelech. He has restored Naomi's standing in the community, and he has given her hope for the future. Not just for the rest of her life, but on into the generations to come. The blessing of the Lord in Naomi's life would now not be forgotten with her death. 
for decades, even centuries to come, people would know God's way of working, God's way of redemption, God's commitment to redeeming his people because of Obed and his line. The very existence of that little boy renewed Naomi's life and would sustain her into old age. But the final verses of our passage show us that God's way is bigger even than that. It's always tempting, isn't it, to to skip over lists of names in the Bible. Uh, But if we do that, I think we'll miss what those lists are telling us. God's way is to work through the lives of real people. Often ordinary people, always sinful people. But God, in his grace, takes the lives of of ordinary sinful people and directs them towards his purposes. That is God's way for all of time. Verse 17, and they named the boy Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. The end of the story shows us that there is so much more to God's blessing than just one marriage and a family for Naomi. No, his purposes are so much bigger than that. His plan is, is not just for now, but for generations to come. I think it's really easy as we read through Old Testament stories to put ourselves in the shoes of the hero. We assume that if we had been there, well, well, that is the role we would have taken. And so we apply the truths we find there as though that is who we are. And so we read this, this book of Ruth, and, and if we're a man, we assume we're supposed to be Boaz. This is all about me being upright and law-abiding, a loving man. We apply the story to our romantic relationships and the way we go about dating. We must be active planners and and take the initiative, but be careful not to run ahead of God. Or maybe if you're a woman, you, you read this story and you think it's all about you being Ruth. If you're faithful and pure and show your commitment to God and his laws, well, well, then he'll bless you and fill your life with good things. And of course, ultimately, we've been trained to think that that means a husband and a family. That's the highest of of God's blessings in our lives. And you know, at one level, we have to acknowledge that, that those narratives are comforting. Because actually, both of those stories, well, well, they put us in control. They mean that we can do something to help ourselves. If only we can be holy enough, live a life pleasing enough to the Lord, follow his commands rigorously enough, 
be generous enough to others, well, then we'll know his favor. Then we'll experience his blessing. Sometimes I think that's how we'd like to understand the story. It paints us in a good light. We're the ones who are in a position to do the redeeming. But of course, that's not the reality at all. That is not the Christian gospel. You and I cannot come to this passage, cannot come to the book of Ruth and read ourselves into the roles of Ruth and Boaz. Because we're not. You and I, each and every one of us, we are Naomi. We doubt God's provision. We're impatient with his timing and we prefer to take matters into our own hands. We wander away from him and and we turn instead to the land of idols. What's more, when we get there, we find our lives are empty. We're destitute. And we have no way back to restore ourselves. We are empty. Friends, what we need is is not just to try harder. What we need is a guardian redeemer. We need one who is related to us. One who is rich. And one who is prepared to sacrifice his own riches in order to redeem us. Obed's birth pointed the original readers of Ruth towards King David. But even the great King David was not the guardian redeemer that we all crave. He was related to us, yes. He was rich, yes. But he wasn't rich enough to redeem all that we owe to our God. In fact, David himself was in great spiritual debt to the Lord. He too was impatient for the Lord to act. He made unwise and ungodly decisions. Even if he had been willing to, David could never have sacrificed his riches to redeem anyone. He was stuck with the rest of us, empty in Moab. He, like the rest of us, needed the Lord to act. But praise God. As we read Ruth today, well, we needn't stop at chapter 4, verse 22. Because, friends, we can pick up the story at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Because there, well, well, there the story continues. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. But friends, Matthew goes on. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And so it goes on. Abijah, the father of Asa. Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. 
Uzziah and Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, Manasseh and Amon, Josiah, Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Abihud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Akim, Elihud, Eleazar, Matan, and Jacob. <laughs> Strange names to us, but all of them people. All of them real people, mostly ordinary people. Some lovely, some awful. Some godly, some not. But all the time in those lives, in that history, God was at work. God was was slowly but, but surely bringing his plans to pass. Preparing the way. You see, this, this little book of Ruth, it is a beautiful story of one family's redemption. But it's not really about the arrival of Obed. It's not, it's not really about the lineage of King David. No, it is really about a God who works in the lives of his people. Who weaves together all of history weave together all of history so that we today might read Matthew chapter 1 verse 16 and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah Obed would restore Naomi's future hope. He would complete her redemption. But generations later, friends, there was another baby. Jesus was his name. He came to restore the whole world. He came to redeem humanity. You see, Jesus Christ is the true and greater Boaz. He is our true guardian redeemer. He is related to us. He is like us. And yet he lived a life of perfect obedience and faithfulness to God's laws. And he's rich beyond all our imagining. And yet was prepared to sacrifice all of that to come and join the real mess of our real lives. And he was prepared to sacrifice everything. Not just some land, not just his name, but even his own life, his own innocence to secure our redemption. This is God's way. This is God's way of working. This is how he does things. The book of Ruth shows us that in miniature. We see Yahweh, the God of the Bible, as a redeeming God. One who brings great blessing from from suffering and hardship. One who is prepared to do what it takes, whatever the cost, to bring his people back to him. And friends, in Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of God's ways. However far our Moab, however deep our grief and mourning and pain, our God has acted to redeem us to bring us back. And it is only in Christ that we find the fullness of our redemption. Whether married or not, 
widowed or single, parents or not, whether we are enjoying the plenty of the Bethlehem harvest or the destitution of Moab, whether we are full or empty, in Jesus Christ, the Lord, the God of Israel has given us a precious, precious son. He has not left us without a guardian redeemer. Jesus Christ will sustain us, not only in our old age, but for all eternity. If we will shelter under the wings of our covenant God, then we need never be empty. In Jesus Christ, we can know all the fullness of life. The final scene in the book of Ruth is, is not the wedding feast of Boaz and Ruth. It's not even the throne of King David. It is the wedding feast of the risen and glorified King Jesus. United with his bride, the church, forevermore. He came once to redeem her and bless her. And he will come again to lead her into eternal life before his throne. Friends, that is our hope as Christians. Not all the, the trappings of a lovely life here and now, but rather the wonderful, permanent blessing of a loving relationship with Christ Jesus. This Advent, we look forward not to a wonderful Christmas, but to a glorious eternity with our guardian redeemer. Let's pray. Our generous God, gracious Father, we thank you that your way is and always has been the way of redemption. That you take our, our messy lives, stained and, and damaged by our own sin and the sin of those around us, that you take lives like that and you work through them. You work to redeem them. You work to bring us back and to fill us. Lord, we thank you for blessing us with the greatest guardian redeemer we could ever hope for. One who was willing to give everything in order to win us back. So, Lord, we pray this Christmas that we might rejoice that in Jesus Christ we have a redeemer. We have great blessing for this life. And we have a glorious hope for all eternity. Would he be our joy this Christmas, we pray. 
Amen. Amen.